purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Dr. Isabella Wentz, is a pharmacist who has dedicated herself to addressing the root cause of autoimmune thyroid disease, the most common form of low thyroid, after being diagnosed herself with Hashimoto's thyroiditis in 2009. Dr. Wentz is here today to talk about her best-selling book entitled Hashimoto's Thyroiditis, Lifestyle Interventions for Finding and Treating the Root Cause. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Isabella Wentz. Hi, Dr. Naiman. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start out with your own personal story and how your personal story led you to write this book. Uh, what happened and what were some of the things you learned when you've, you yourself discovered that you had low thyroid from autoimmune uh, thyroid condition? Well, I guess my journey started somewhere in my uh, freshman year of college where I had probably I had been a very energetic individual, always, you know, waking up early and having just great energy throughout the day to participate in extracurricular activities, to study, to hang out with my friends and family. And after about of mono during my freshman year in college, I just could not wake up. So I was sleeping for 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day. And one time I even slept through a final exam, which was, you know, Definitely not a good thing during your first year in college. Um, eventually, that fatigue sort of um, got a little bit better. And at that point, I was sleeping from probably 10 to 12 hours each night. And every year, I would go to the doctor and get a checkup. And I would, you know, they would say, you know, what's going on with you? And I would just talk about the fatigue I had. And nobody ever said anything about it. They said they tested me for anemia and for thyroid and all of the other suspects, and that everything was normal. So, you know, I, I've learned to live with this fatigue, and I went through it with undergrad and pharmacy school. Um, not quite sure how I made it out with, with the grades that I did, but somehow it worked out. Um, eventually, when I was uh, working as a consultant pharmacist for this uh, State of California project, I started having additional thyroid symptoms. So I started having really bad hair loss, anxiety, and this terrible acid reflux and irritable bowel syndrome. And, you know, I was 25 at that time, and I just really felt like my body was falling apart. Something was going on, and it just it felt like I was getting worse and worse every single month. So I went to additional doctors, and, of course, they told me everything was fine. But at that point, I had, you know, been a healthcare care uh, provider myself, and I realized that not all doctors are created equally, so I, I went out and I found some other doctors that were willing to do more comprehensive testing on me. At that point, I learned that I had Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which was uh, basically an autoimmune attack on my thyroid. And at first, I was, you know, I was a little bit shocked because in pharmacy school, we learned about hypothyroidism, that usually you have this person that's overweight, that's sluggish, that can't remember things, and... And, you know, depressed, and I, I felt like, okay, well, I'm anxious, and I'm having irritable bowel syndrome. It, it feels more like I have hyperthyroidism. And so I went to really research my own condition. At the time, I was researching a lot of rare disorders that people had and trying to find out best strategies for them as far as medications and lifestyle changes. 
And when I realized that the condition I had wasn't just because my thyroid was sluggish or lazy, that my thyroid and my, you know, my body was attacking my thyroid, is when I decided that I really needed to do something about it. I, when I was going through pharmacy school, we always learned about chronic conditions that people need to implement lifestyle changes first if the condition is mild and medications later if the condition has advanced and that oftentimes the lifestyle changes can reduce the need for medication and can sometimes eliminate the condition completely. And here I was, you know, with a thyroid disorder and there were no lifestyle interventions that were recommended by the traditional medical model. It was basically if you have um, underactive thyroid, whatever the cause is, you just need to take a medication. There's nothing else you can do. By the way, you can develop lupus later on in life and you can develop all these other autoimmune conditions. I didn't like that. I wanted to find out you know, what I did to get this condition. Here I, here I was, you know, eating well, which consisted of, you know, whole grains and low-fat dairy and exercising and not smoking. I was doing all of these things that I thought I was doing well, yet I developed this autoimmune condition. So I wanted to figure out, one, what I did to de- develop the condition. Two, if I could stop its progression. Three, if I could figure out a way to make myself better because the medications weren't doing everything for me. And four, I wanted to know if there was anything I can do to reverse the condition. And that's sort of how I, how I got on this journey of um, Hashimoto's and figuring out some of the triggers and figuring out some of the lifestyle as well as functional medicine interventions that can really make a tremendous difference in people's lives. Well, I, I can't think of a, a more difficult condition in, in conventional and alternative medicine with regards to um, diagnosis and treatment, at least in the sense that there doesn't seem to be any consensus around what is normal, what is abnormal, uh, what are the best tests, what is the best treatment, and then even on top of that, a lot of the symptoms of, of low thyroid are common symptoms of other conditions as well, which really seems to put the onus on on. The, finding a, a practitioner who's willing to be a, a detective as well and, and, and stick with a patient and figure out what the, the best solution is. Yeah, absolutely. You've brought up some really great points from, from the testing to, you know, all the practitioners and all of the symptoms. Just, you know, I would go to multiple doctors and I would say I'm, I'm anxious and I have irritable bowel syndrome and I have all of these things. And a lot of times, you know, as probably as a young female, I would be pushed aside and I was told that, you know, I was, it's in my head. And a lot of women get, unfortunately, they get labeled as hypochondriacs or they get misdiagnosed with depression, with anxiety, with bipolar disorder. I've seen women who were hospitalized for quote unquote psychosis because um, you know, in the early stages of Hashimoto's, when the thyroid is under autoimmune attack, basically the thyroid cells are getting broken down very quickly and a rush of thyroid hormone gets dumped into the bloodstream. And so people have these attacks of agitation due to uh, hyperthyroidism and then they have drops. So this can really look like bipolar disorder to, to you know, traditionally trained doctors that are not aware of the implications of Hashimoto's. So well, definitely I, you know, I encourage every patient, every person, every woman, every man who's having these weird symptoms like cold intolerance, excess fatigue, 
weight gain, hair loss, mood swings, anxiety, depression, you know, look at getting your thyroid tested and not just the standard lab tests. I would recommend doing a comprehensive panel. So um, the TSH test is a great place to start. One thing you should know about that is when scientists first determined that reference range, um, what they do is they, they get a whole bunch of people together, they take their blood, and then they, de- they look at the normal reference ranges and they determine what um, the reference range should be in the general population. Well, when they did that, they had people who were elderly in that range, and they also had people who had thyroid disease and undiagnosed thyroid disease. So then the, the reference range became very lax. So, um, you know, just to give you an example, an average person without thyroid disease should have a TSH somewhere around a 1. And um, when I was going to the doctors, my TSH was as high as 4 or 4.5, which, you know, for me meant sleeping 12 hours a night and not being able to brush my hair without half of it falling out. And, um, you know, for a woman of 25, 26 years of age, she really should have a TSH somewhere around 1. So 1 is getting that TSH number and looking at your labs and making sure they're within range. And the other thing is looking at your thyroid antibodies. So thyroid antibodies are a marker of the attack that's happening on the thyroid. So this is a a marker in Hashimoto's. Um, Anywhere from 80 to 90% of people with Hashimoto's will be positive for these antibodies. And the antibodies can be elevated for a decade, sometimes even longer, before there's any change in TSH. So that means that we have these antibodies that are formed to the thyroid, and our thyroid gland is able to compensate until a certain point, um, but then it becomes damaged, and then it's no longer able to compensate, and that's when we see a rise in TSH. Now, just because somebody doesn't have a rise in TSH does not mean that they are not going to have these symptoms of Hashimoto's, and, and I would argue that the best time to intervene for a person with Hashimoto's is before their TSH goes up, because that means their thyroid gland is, um, has not been significantly damaged by the immune system. So the two antibodies are thyroglobulin antibodies, abbreviated as TG antibodies, as well as thyroid peroxidase antibodies, and that's abbreviated as TPO antibodies. Um, some cases, you know, there's a maybe 10 to 20% of people who will not have these antibody markers in the blood, And at that point, if you still are having the symptoms, if you have family history, if you suspect that you have thyroid disease, you need to ask your doctor for a thyroid ultrasound because sometimes we may not have the the markers in the blood, but we may have the changes consistent with Hashimoto's that can be seen on ultrasound. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to pharmacist and author Dr. Isabella Wentz about her book, Hashimoto's Thyroiditis. Lifestyle Interventions for Finding and Treating the Root Cause. One of the interesting things you you mentioned in the book, Dr. Wentz, is that about 20% of people have spontaneous remission, uh, even though uh, conventional doctors don't don't suggest that people can get better from the disease. Apparently a minority, a significant minority do. Do you have any sense of how many people get go into remission who do some of these lifestyle changes in addition to um, taking the medication? Or, or would you still consider it around 20% that potentially could cure themselves of Hashimoto's? 
You know, that's a really great question. And, you know, when I was first researching my Hashimoto's, I wanted to know that it was possible to go, get into remission from it because you often hear about different autoimmune conditions going into remission, but there was very literature on Hashimoto's. But I was able to find a couple of articles that talked about spontaneous remission. And so one study found about 20% of people were able to get into remission uh, just on their own without, you know, just taking medications and just looking at their bodies over time. So I thought that was a pretty impressive amount, and I, I wanted to know if there was going to be a way to, um, to get more people in remission rather than just the baseline, 20%. Um, unfortunately, I don't have statistics. I am doing a clinical trial coming up in February about this um, to see what kind of statistics we have for people that implement a lot of uh, the lifestyle changes and a lot of the functional medicine um, interventions. I would estimate that at least 50% of people can get into remission. So um, doing some of these things like going gluten-free um, has been found to help another uh, 15 to 20% of people with Hashimoto's get into remission. So just doing that alone can be, you know, can add another 20% to that, to that number that is, um, is the is a spontaneous remission. Is there and then something looking about at treating infections that we know of it, that can add another? Um, I, I would say at least another ten percent to that. Is there something specific about the proteins in gluten that uh, cross-react with thyroid tissue in terms of autoimmunity, or is is gluten an issue that anyone with any sort of autoimmune condition should consider? You know, that's a really great question, and um, a lot of the gluten experts will talk about how the, there's a protein in gluten that seems to resemble the um, part of the protein in the thyroid gland, and there's this theory in autoimmunity called molecular mimicry, which basically means when the immune system recognizes something it doesn't like, um, you know, I picture the immune system maybe taking a picture of it with its iPhone, to say, recognize, okay, this is something that I don't like. This is what it looks like. And then this is shown around to all of these immune cells. And now, unfortunately, the immune cells may not be able to properly uh, distinguish the picture from rest of the body. So maybe the, uh, the, chem the structure looks similar enough where the immune system might get confused. And that's the whole molecular mimicry theory. So um, this would apply to any autoimmune condition, in particular Hashimoto's. The, the other part of the reason why gluten may be a problem in people with, with Hashimoto's is, you know, there's a new theory in autoimmunity, and it, it's, I don't know if it has a formal name, but a lot of people call it the three-legged stool theory. It's um, by a doctor named Alessio Fasano, who's a celiac specialist and um, one of the top gluten experts in the world, and he talks about three things that need to be present in people with an autoimmune condition. So we need to have the right genes, and then we need to have the right triggers. And then the third part of the, the puzzle or the stool, three-legged stool, is having intestinal permeability. And now the thing about um, that stool is it needs three legs to stand. So if you take away the genes or if you take away the triggers, or if you take away the um, intestinal permeability, then the person goes into remission from autoimmunity, and he's been able to demonstrate that with um, some patients in his clinic. The um, interesting thing about the gluten molecule 
is that it causes intestinal permeability in everybody. So those with celiac disease, you know, having just a little bit of gluten will cause intestinal permeability for a really, really long time. And then there are people with gluten sensitivity who maybe have um, a shorter amount of time where they react to gluten. And then people who don't react to gluten, um, Dr. Fasano, I believe, mentioned that it might be anywhere from, you know, minutes to a few hours where they might have intestinal permeability as a result from gluten consumption. So, you know, I would argue that anybody with an autoimmune disease should consider going gluten-free at least for a few months to see if that made a difference in their lives. Can you also talk about some of the other triggers that you suggest people try avoiding, one of them being soy and another being iodine or iodine-containing foods? For I know a lot of people with low thyroid, the first thing they think of taking is iodine, and, and it, in fact, could be exacerbating people's conditions, in, in at least in the United States. Definitely. So, um, so gluten, dairy, and soy are three, three of the most common foods that are going to be causing problems and potentially causing, you know, the root triggers of autoimmune thyroid disease. So I've had people who have gone on dairy-free diets, who have gone into remission, obviously um, gluten-free diets we just covered, and also people who have gone on soy-free diets that have gone into remission. So um, sometimes it's a combination of going on a gluten-free, dairy-free, and soy-free diet that helps the person go into remission from Hashimoto's. And, um, you know, there's, um, there's some research about soy being a goitrogen, and then there's other research about it being genetically modified, and then some information about, you know, fermented soy being okay and not okay. Uh, the way I kind of try to look at it and simplify it is that soy, I consider it mostly to be a processed food, and um, because it's, a, it's the top, one of the top GMO foods in the United States that even if you've had, because if you've had soy in processed foods, you've likely been sensitized to it. Therefore, even eating fermented soy products as well as, you know, raw soy products may be an issue for you as well. Um, There have been some studies that have connected um, feeding soy infant formulas to higher rates of Hashimoto's later on in life. So um, that's sort of the thyroid-soy connection. And, you know, practically I've seen people getting doing much better when they're not taking, when they're not consuming soy. With, um, with iodine, you know, this is a really controversial topic and, and, you know, one that just gets so much attention. And I think talking about iodine actually hinders progress in other dimensions. So um, just to give you listeners a little bit of background, um, underactive thyroid, the primary reason for that worldwide is actually iodine deficiency. So, you know, in countries that are underdeveloped. And this has been a very long problem, long-standing problem. So what a lot of developed countries like the United States and many countries in Europe started doing is they started adding iodine to the salt supply so that we would have enough iodine on board. And, um, you know, and so thus in those countries, having iodine deficiency, hypothyroidism is rather rare. But people still think, okay, iodine is an important molecule. molecule, It helps to create thyroid hormone, and that's very much true. But what the research has found is that iodine, high doses or excess doses of iodine can actually act as a trigger for Hashimoto's. 
And so um, they've, they've studied a few different countries who started salt iodization programs, some of them in Eastern Europe, some of them in the Middle East, where they would have a baseline measurement of thyroid peroxidase antibodies in the general population, and then they would repeat that same measurement 10 years later after adding iodine to the salt supply. And it was remarkable because every single study showed that the rates of um, thyroid antibodies increased dramatically, so like two to four times higher rates. So when a population may have had, you know, 5% of people with thyroid antibodies, that jumped to 20% and around in one study. And the thought of it is that iodine is a uh, Goldilocks nutrient, so having, um, you know, just the right amount is very important to thyroid function. And having it in balance with other nutrients like selenium, which is often deficient as well, um, you know, may be problematic. So if you have, let's say if you have somebody with low selenium and low iodine levels, they are not as likely to have Hashimoto's, but if you give them iodine and they still have low selenium levels, that increases their rates of Hashimoto's. And, and same with if they have low iodine and if you give selenium, then they'll have um, an increased rate of, of thyroid disorders. So it's really a gentle balance, and I, I like to think of iodine actually as a drug. Um, I know a lot of people are very, very generous with saying, oh, you've got a thyroid problem, let's just put you on super high doses of iodine and see what happens. Um, but unfortunately, I've seen clients and you know people who have had really bad experiences where they start getting these high doses of iodine, and at first they get more energy, but then they really crash. Um, I've had clients who are bedridden. Um, their TSH numbers have jumped really, really high, and their thyroid antibodies have jumped really, really high. So, you know, this is something that's very concerning for me. Now, um, for, a, for a person like that who had been exposed to really high doses of iodine, you know, it may be helpful to go for a short-term iodine restrictions, so for a few months where they would be on a low iodine diet and not, not having any multivitamins that contain iodine in them. Um, for the average person with Hashimoto's or without Hashimoto's, you know, taking, taking like a multivitamin with iodine or taking a prenatal vitamin with, with iodine, that amount is probably not going to be an issue. So, um, you know, everybody's a little bit different, but usually, rate, usually somewhere under 500 micro, under 450 micrograms should be okay, and the average multi should have somewhere around 150. Well, what are some of the foods that you would consider emphasizing for thyroid support? Are there some particularly good ones that have nutrients that are supportive for thyroid metabolism or for reducing autoimmune reactions? You know, the foods that I really like for people with um, with Hashimoto's are going to be really nutrient dense foods. So I like to follow some of the principles of like the paleo diet or the body ecology diet where, where people, you know, eat a lot of, a lot of vegetables. Um, they eat high quality meats. Um, doing organ meats is really great. It's a really great way of getting a lot of nutrients into the body. And fermented foods. So fermented foods are, you know, are traditional foods that are full of good bacteria and they help balance the gut which is really relevant because most of our immune system actually matures and develops in the gut. So having fermented foods on board can help us um, stabilize the immune system, thus lessening the autoimmune attack on the thyroid. 
And avocados, um, so there are some foods that are considered thermogenic foods, so they help people create foods, uh, help people create heat. Um, so avocados would be one of those foods that I, I think are really great for people with thyroid disorders. Um, doing hot lemon water with some ginger in it is also another great tonic. You, you also mention in, in your book that while medicines, while thyroid hormone replacement doesn't treat the cause, that you still consider it to be a crucial first step for, for addressing the cause. Uh, tell us a little bit about why that's the case. Well, you know, for, for somebody who has a normal TSH and who just has thyroid antibodies, I would not consider, you know, putting them on medications unless they had significant um, side effects or significant um, symptoms. But for a person who has been hypothyroid for such a really, really long time, you know, I, I would say thyroid hormone is very, very important because it acts on every single cell in the body. So, you know, the quickest way to get thyroid hormone on board is to take supplemental thyroid hormone. Um, You know, doing the lifestyle interventions, it could take three months, six months, sometimes two years, and and even longer in some cases to, to get your thyroid function back. And, you know, some people, they can regenerate thyroid tissue, but for many people, um, this happens at a very, very slow rate. Uh, the other thing is the oxidative, uh, whenever we have a increased TSH, there's more oxidative stress and more damage going on because of that. And this actually attracts more immune cells to the thyroid. So it's sort of like a, like a vicious cycle where more and more, um, you know, the higher the TSH, the more aggressive the attack on the thyroid is going to be. So studies have actually found that in people with an elevated TSH and elevated thyroid antibodies, once they are given thyroid hormone medications, um, when their TSH becomes normalized, their thyroid antibodies lower, and, and you know, this can be indicative of the immune attack on the thyroid. So are, that's, are you that's yourself, why I recommend doing that. Are with you that, yourself partial to either Armour Thyroid, the, the pig uh, thyroid extract or to Synthroid or other uh, synthetic versions of the thyroid hormones? You know, I think that's a really great question, and there are a lot of different thyroid hormones out there, but unfortunately most traditional doctors and pharmacists will only recommend Synthroid. Um, that's the number one selling medication um, in all out of every medication in the whole United States for the year 2013. And not a lot of patients are told about alternatives. Um, studies have shown that about 10% of people, that about 10% of people with, uh, with Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism, they're not properly able to convert the um, levothyroxine or T4 hormone that's in the Synthroid to the more active T3 thyroid hormone. And therefore, they're even though you give them this medication and then their TSH numbers might look okay, they're still going to end up with a lot of thyroid symptoms and therefore their condition is not going to be properly managed. Now, the research Dr. Wentz, studies... Dr. Wentz, unfortunately, I'm going to have to interrupt you because we're out of time, but can you quickly uh, offer your website if you have one? Sure. It's thyroidpharmacist.com, and people can sign up to get a free gluten-free guide and a book chapter at thyroidpharmacist.com. It was great having you on Health Watch today, Dr. Wentz. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Neiman. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. We're, we're talking today to Dr. Isabella Wentz, pharmacist and author of the book Hashimoto's Thyroiditis, Lifestyle Interventions for Finding and Treating the Root Cause. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Neiman, your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.